scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah 7:14 and Luke 1, 26 to 38. Therefore, this Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And the New Testament reading from Luke 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore this child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we continue on in our series called The People of Advent, showing how waiting for the arrival of Christ reveals not just purpose for our lives, but gives us hope in an uncertain world. And as we've entered into the second week of Advent, uh, and as Christmas looms near, we're learning how to be a people of waiting, the people waiting the second coming of Christ. Today's text is a familiar one for many who might have grown up in the church, but if you haven't, that's all right too. There, there's much to cover and explore here. And today I want to focus our time on Mary's call to be the mother of Jesus, because I believe it will reveal much about the person of Christ and who we are as his call and chosen people. So before we dive into that, uh, would you pray with me? Father, fill us anew again with the hope of Christ and his peace. Fill us with a humble expectation of what you will do in us as the body of Christ. Remind us of the fulfilled hope in the birth of your son we have in the world today because he has come into the we thank you for all of us in your son's name. Amen. So, last week, uh, we talked about expectations we might have for our lives uh, versus God's reality and learning to live in God's reality. And so, with the start of the Christmas season, uh, we are brought to the expectations that surround us and our families this season. By now, you are expected to make your home into a festive, uh, decorated house filled with, you know, stockings, tinsel, red and green, everything. You are expected to see consumerism on the rise with the average family spending about $900 for gifts and family, uh, for family and friends. Uh, you're expected to see nativity scenes all around the city, uh, expected to hear certain songs on the radio, and expected to realize the stress of what comes during this period of time. Uh, maybe dealing with difficult family, uh, maybe dealing with loneliness or loss, uh, remembering who isn't there um, in the holiday celebrations. 
Uh, maybe you are struggling yourself just right now with the stress of life at the end of another year. When these expectations come, it becomes increasingly difficult, doesn't it? Uh, to manage those expectations when life throws something that puts things in chaos. And the stress of all these things can have us wondering about the unknown that's in front of us. Uh, am I really called to this kind of life? Can I handle what's about to come? And this is how we come to the story of Mary and this angel Gabriel. Um, Mary comes with a very unexpected calling, uh, something that throws in and disrupts her life in ways that she could not even begin to imagine. And in this, we will talk about uh, three things here today about Mary's calling that should speak to our callings as well. Uh, so the first thing is that we'll talk about is that uh, Mary's calling is about mercy, not merit. It's about, number two, faith, not fault-finding. It's about three, spirit and not self. So mercy, not merit. Faith, not fault-finding, and spirit, not self. So let's start with mercy and not merit. We start our introduction to Mary, notably from a contrast that Luke writes about earlier in chapter 1. If, if, if you want to read through the Gospel of Luke during the season, this would be a great sort of way to do your Advent devotionals. Uh, earlier on in chapter 1, this story is set with Mary as a contrast from the angel Gabriel's visit to Zechariah. And essentially shows where Zechariah had failed, Mary would succeed. Uh, but how? How? Uh, this is a constant theme throughout Luke's gospel when you're thinking about what is sort of expected in the narrative. Luke is, is a master of irony. If you scan your Bible a couple of verses uh, before our text here today, the irony jumps out of the page. You know, no way would Zechariah, right, a, a priest, from the priesthood of the lineage of the priests of Samuel, who married a daughter of the priesthood of Aaron, worshiping in the temple, no way this man would not understand what is happening to him when the angel Gabriel visits. But in Zechariah, what do we see? Zechariah, despite all the merits of his title, his family, his position, Zechariah fails to show and demonstrate faith in the messenger of God and the good news he was to expect. So contrast to what we see uh, before our passage here now to Mary. Gabriel, after what should have been a slam-dunk visit to Zechariah, heads over to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now why is this important to note about Nazareth? We are moving from supposedly the holiest place, the temple where, where Zechariah was, where his presence was supposed to dwell, where he was talking to a priest of the Lord, now to a land which borders the pagan lands of Samaria. We are moving from the area supposedly where the highest honor and glory was to be felt to the area of least significance and unholy ground in the city of Nazareth. This is why Nathaniel, in his first meeting of Jesus, scoffs at the idea that anything good could come from Nazareth. We are not to expect anything from it or anything good to come out of it. It's a city that is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Galilee itself wasn't a happening town. It was away from trade routes. It was surrounded by Gentiles. It was not the religious center that Judea was. Right? So there was no upscale coffee shops, no Harris Theater, not a single good Korean barbecue place. It was not going to have an H Mart or a Lothian nearby. It's a nothing location in Nazareth. And yet despite what lack of merit 
might have been attributed to Nazareth, we see the mercy of God shine forth in a way that is completely unexpected. Perhaps this is why when the angel appears to Mary, his first words to her are words of assurance. That is this of welcome. Because when the angel of the Lord appears, and, and Mary would have been uniquely aware of this, only two things could really happen when the angel of the Lord appears. Either it's going to be judgment or it's going to be blessings. Right? It's like you know, the boss of a major company comes and visits someone who's working on the Lord's floor of a company. It's either going to be great news or something has gone terribly wrong. And the angel is trying to assure Mary here. This is why Gabriel starts with a friendly greetings and favors one. The Lord is with you. Just to make it abundantly clear that what is coming to Mary is hopeful expectation and not a judgmental one. It's a merciful visit to her. Because Mary realizes that if the angel were to visit under any other pretense, it would be, uh, it would spell death. Now, why would Mary be afraid? I mean, what else could we have expected from Mary's life up to this point in this story? When we get to this section where we see that a virgin named Mary is supposed to be married to a man named Joseph, if we were one of the original readers of the story, uh, she would have never been the person we would assume to be given the weight of this blessing. She was going to be married to a simple carpenter, live a rural, quiet life, live in obscurity for the rest of her life. No way should there be any reason for significance to be bestowed upon her, particularly the promise of the coming Messiah. There's nothing in her background prior to the introduction of her in Luke's gospel to think that she is deserving of this honor and privilege. So, you know, Luke doesn't introduce Mary as this sort of blameless, sinless, high-achieving woman of, of extraordinary value in the sense that she's earned it. The favor that God is showing her is not merit-based, right? Mary didn't good works her way into being chosen to be born in the Messiah. It's completely on the basis of mercy. In fact, the statement that follows some of your Bible translations tagged on to the end of verse 28, uh, blessed are you among women, isn't included in many of the early manuscripts of Scripture. And that's why uh, the ESV, in, in my opinion, rightly omits the passage from being included here. Mary hasn't received a blessing that is somehow connotating the basis of her moral or righteous nature. Uh, to suggest that she is somehow righteous based upon these verses, you know, this perfect or sinless woman who earns the right to carry Christ is an assumption that we cannot infer from the text of Scripture itself. So then, what, what sets Mary apart? Nothing other than the mercy of God extended to her for this calling that would be placed on her life. Now, this is both hopeful news and humbling news for all of us here today. It's hopeful news because it reminds us that the callings that God has placed on our lives are set from the course that he has set for us and not ours. And, and that releases us from the pressure to live the hopes that, that somehow, right, we could have earned God's blessing. That somehow, right, that, we, we, that, that, that it wasn't God's mercy that gave us the lives that we have. We are not expected to be perfect or sinless or come from the best family situation or have the greatest life right now or to be this great achieving person in order to receive God's blessing. Rather, it's the mercy 
of Christ. It's his marriage that calls us. It's the mercy of Jesus' blood for us that covers us. So it releases us from this like uncarryable burden of having to feel as though we needed to live up to the calling of our own. I mean, can you imagine Mary, right, being called the mother of Jesus? What kind of pressures would come into your mind knowing that you would have to raise literally the perfect child? But God didn't choose her because she's perfect. God chose her, dare I say, precisely because she wasn't. To demonstrate God's mercy and grace that covers her completely. That it's all by grace she will give birth. This is the hope that Mary carried. But there is this other side to this point of mercy, and that's this humbling news for all of us here who maybe would like to believe the lie that we bring merit to earn God's mercy in our lives. That somehow the blessings of God are credited to our hustle and our hard work. That, you know, God in, in some, all right, maybe not in a major way, but maybe in a minor way, really does love you more because of the things that you've done for him. And is sort of pouring out this extra measure of blessing on you because you're just such an awesome person. Now, to be clear, God does really want us to work hard. Uh, you know, to prepare and to plan, to do all things unto the Lord with diligence, integrity, faithfulness, joy. But the danger that Christians can often run into is that they believe their hustle is the reason for God's favor. They've earned it because of the workloads they've placed on themselves, because of the sacrifices that they've made. And you know, there's sort of this delusion that can come as we feel ourselves uniquely gifted above other believers in a way that makes us more favored by God. And these moments that we remember that God calls people to hard work in hard places not to receive the benefit of any of the fruits of their labor. Uh, think of Jeremiah's ministry, largely being ignored in his lifetime. I think of Moses not being able to enter into the promised land. You see, God's blessing is a favor of his grace, not a favor that he owes you. And that should humble us from not getting into, in this life, bargains with God about our effort and our work and what should be expected from such labor. It keeps our hearts humble and from being bitter against God because somehow God broke some contract that you made with him that was never promised in Scripture. It keeps us grateful for the ways in which we are blessed because of the work and the calling that God has given to us. The humility of mercy, not merit, is recognizing that it's the mercy of God and not our works. That means that we center our hope on God's blessing, Christ himself, and his benefits, Christ's work, Christ's hustle, and keep ourselves in a rightful place before God himself. God's blessings are his to distribute and his, to love, uh, his alone, and it's not ours to manipulate or own. It's all his mercy and not our merit. So God's mercy, then, leads us to our second point. In faith, not fault finding. Second point. Now, it's important here to see in this speech that the angel gives that the angel Gabriel is giving her a new expectation for her life. And each of these expectations could be overwhelming and crushing for anyone who would hear these things with preconceived notions about how their lives would go. 
Let's examine these, these things that, that the angel gave birth to. One, that she'll be giving birth to a child. Uh, when someone else comes to tell you that you're pregnant and you don't know it, that's not exactly news that they should have before you. Uh, so let's just pause there and consider how much of a bombshell announcement this would have been. More than that, it's not like Mary had any thought or idea that pregnancy was a part of her immediate future. Uh, the marriage process back uh, in, in this time period, uh, it, it would take years to fully realize. So Mary was on this cultural form of abstinence to know that a child was not coming anywhere anytime soon. Uh, this would have drastically changed her timeline in the ways that would have been deeply unexpected. Not only that, but that his son would be called great, son of the most high, and that the Lord God would give to him the throne of his father, David. So in other words, uh, Mary's son would be over the house of Jacob forever, unifying God's family, the 12 tribes of Israel that were scattered after the Babylonian exile. This generational promise that God's people had been looking for their entire lives, the, the centuries-old hope that the people of God would have a kingdom without end, the blessing to all the nations, this kingdom would arrive through Mary. She is now thrust into the political, social, economic, and cultural warfare that has been a part of Israel's story forever. She will be a pivotal person in this conflict rather than some unknown woman from the so if you put yourself in Mary's shoes, one might be tempted to view her response in the same vein as the way Zechariah responded. How will this be? Or Zechariah said, how will I know this? There's no way that someone like me could have this happen to them. I mean, have you ever tried to have someone to tell you, try to tell you something that was either too good to be true about your life? Or tried to thrust upon you a burden that you knew you couldn't carry. It's easy for us to be cynical and skeptical about what God might be promising and calling us to do. But Mary's response is very different than Zechariah if you look a little bit more closely. See, if you look at Zechariah's visit from the angel in Luke 1, you will see that Zechariah is chastised for his lack of faith. Uh, Zechariah makes this innocent seemingly innocent remark, but we know that it's not innocent about how the Lord will let him know about how he and Elizabeth will have a child. Uh, Zechariah's doubt comes right through the page. The sign of unbelief that the Lord could do this at all. Zechariah sees God's plan right in front of him, and he tries to immediately find holes, to find fault with it. Zechariah might appear to be a pragmatist, and indeed, pragmatism is a great virtue. Uh, we need pragmatists in the church, otherwise lofty visions would just keep on crashing and burning in every corner. Uh, but what's the problem with fault-finding in this case? It's, it's when you try to find fault with God himself and where the Lord is calling you. It's saying to the Lord, you know, I know exactly what's right for my life, and I don't need your word to tell me what's possible. Fault finding against the Lord can be a sign that you really just don't want to go where the Lord is taking you. You ever try to encourage someone to abstain or run away from their idols or to run away from their sins? I mean, what inevitably happens, right? They try to puncture every hole in why it just won't work. And you know, I can't give up my addictions. My entire identity and community are wrapped up in it. I can't give up my lust. I'm too weak. It's too hard. 
I'm, I'm just a man. I can't give up my work. I'm successful. I need the validation. It's the only thing in life that I'm good at. Good. I can't do what the Lord is calling me to do. It's impractical. It's not possible. And suddenly, we start sounding like Zechariah. And he says, I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in me. Fault-finding with the Lord will always find a way to turn us into Jonah's, running the opposite direction of where the Lord wants to take us and is calling us to go. It's trapping ourselves to this very safe view that we have of ourselves. To be rather than seeing the person that God is calling us to be. Molded into the new creation. So look at Mary's statement again. There might be seeing the question of fault finding, but what do we notice about the angel's response? The angel is showing her that her statement was not one of fault finding, but of faith. Her attitude is, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go here. How will this happen? For Zechariah, it's a question of fault finding. For Mary, it is a question of faith-filled pragmatics that leads to greater faith in what the Lord will do. You know, um, as I've gotten to know many of you, I've gotten the opportunity to hear many of your stories. And many of you have been gracious to open up about the Lord's journey in your life and the journey that you all have been on. And if there's, if there's one common theme that I listen to and hear about as I meet with City of Hope members, it's that God's calling came to you at a critical moment in life. And in doing so, it changed everything about how, what you expected life to be and how you thought it was going to be lived out. Whether it caused you to move, start a new career, leave an unhealthy relationship, or, or carrying burdens of your family that you didn't expect to carry the weight and expectation of others uh, in, in a God-honoring, Christ-sacrificial way. Following the call of God has taken many of us into unexpected places. And in some cases, even greater depths of uncertainty and suffering. But what I've been so encouraged by, as I've heard your stories, is the trust and faithfulness that God will somehow carry you through this, even if some of you are hanging on by a thread. Despite the dangers that lie ahead, you are still holding on to the Lord. After all, notice here what the angel doesn't say to Mary. It doesn't state anything about how Mary is going to overcome this situation with having her child in wedlock. It doesn't talk about what fortunes Mary will receive so she can afford to take care of this new baby. It doesn't even mention whether or not she will survive the pregnancy, a very real threat and danger to a community without the medical resources that we have today. There are legitimate and real anxieties that come with this quote-unquote blessing from the angel of the Lord. But faith in the Lord the God who has carried his people through the wilderness despite their unbelief, the God who carried them from their enemies despite their idolatries, the God who repeatedly cared for those who are weak, those who are poor, those who are struggling and hurting. We have a Savior who has accomplished all these things to demonstrate that faith in the Good Shepherd will never leave us wanting. Mary is reminded of this when the angel tells her that it won't be herself that has to endure this trial. Rather, it's the Holy Spirit that will come upon her to bring about the Messiah. And that leads us to our final point here today. That is the Spirit, and not the self. Uh, now, to talk about uh, the Spirit, we, we need to understand historically, up until this point in the Bible's history, what the Spirit of the Lord was in the Old Testament. 
Uh, the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord came upon a person, appears 23 times in the Old Testament. And is almost always in the context of this mighty judge, or, or a powerful king, or a wise prophet doing a mighty deed or work from the Lord. Saving God's people from destruction. Ruling over God's people with power and might and dignity. Speaking God's word, heralding his commandments. The Spirit of the Lord coming upon a person was the highest honor that someone could receive from an Old Testament standpoint. It ensured victory. It ensured conquering. It ensured when the Spirit of the Lord came upon you, it was game, set, match. Right? There's nothing left for you to do but witness and see what the Lord is going to do. But notice here what the angel Gabriel is promising Mary. Notice again the pedigree of Mary, at least in the world's eyes. She is not a famous king or prophet or mighty judge or warrior. She's just simply Mary from Nazareth, a teenager who was just engaged with someone who she loved. And the Holy Spirit is supposed to come upon her to do great things for the Lord. Think about the, 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 the news, how this would have reached her. Now think about this, about the news that Jesus sends his spirit upon you. This is, in fact, what always the Lord does, doesn't he? He takes people that wouldn't have appeared to be greatly significant and thrusts them to a place that would show that the wisdom of the world is fallen. The spirit of the Lord is what carries his people. And the design all throughout Scripture in, in, in Mary and other people's lives is that it's demonstrating that it is indeed the Lord that does the work. In focusing on Jesus' ministry, we rightly talk about his work on the cross for the sake of our sins. We rightly look to Jesus' life, right? But perhaps we overlook the strength of Jesus' ministry. Do you remember how it begins? It inaugurates with the Spirit of the Lord descending on him like a dove. The Spirit's power, which enabled Jesus to perform miracles. John 3, 34, saying that the Spirit was on him without measure. Acts chapter 10, 38, saying that Jesus has had the Spirit in power. Hebrews 9, 13 to 14, reminds us that the blood of Christ was offering through the Holy Spirit without blemish to God. You see, the Spirit's power is the reason why Jesus' ministry and life was undefiled. And in the Holy Spirit's power, he finalizes the work of Christ on the cross for our behalf. The Holy Spirit throughout Jesus' life and ministry was vital to understanding how Jesus could be fully God and fully man. The Holy Spirit was perfecting Christ's work. Did he see now the wonder of the angel's statement to Mary? Right? And to the people of God when Jesus promises us his Holy Spirit, when Jesus promises that he would send the Holy Spirit to each and every single one of us, the same Spirit of the Lord that fought back the enemies of God in the book of Judges, the same Spirit of the Lord that kept the people of God sustained through the wilderness, the same Spirit of the Lord that made the word of God clear to those who would hear it, that Holy Spirit resides in you. The same Spirit that walked Jesus through the trials and temptations of life to be conquered, to be purified from sin, to walk in faithfulness and holiness, that spirit of Christ resides in us. So given this perspective, it reminds us to, to place the emphasis on the Christian life, on the Holy Spirit's work through us. And that 
Christian is what will fuel you in the day to day. You might have many callings that God has placed on your life. To leave a legacy of love for your family. To build systems and organizations that improve the world that we live in. To make an impact on the next generation, fighting for the issues of justice and mercy. To build the better society and the greater good for the kingdom of God. And these are all great expectations to have. And a life well lived. But the Spirit's power is what gives you strength for the work ahead. You are not alone in carrying all of these burdens. You see, the problem is that our callings and expectations are, it's not that our callings and expectations are too ambitious for the Lord. Our problem is that our callings and expectations are trying to be done underneath the weight of our own capabilities, that you believe that it's you that's doing it, apart from the Lord working in each and every single moment. When we try to build God's kingdom without the power of the Spirit, it becomes a kingdom of self, a kingdom of personal accolades and acclaim and influence. And the result of that always will be that you will be exhausted, tired, weary, worn out, because you won't find your rest in the Spirit alone. Rather, consider Mary's final response. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Mary subjects herself to the Lord's will in her life. Now notice what Mary's saying here. It's not that she'll have all of her answers answered. It's not that she will know exactly how it will play out. It's not even that she will not face weakness or trial or suffering. But rather, she wants to strive each day to seek the Spirit's calling in her life. To put trust and faith in the very words of God. That God will never leave her or abandon her. It's important for us to remember and recognize that if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit in his ministry and work, then those of us who are united to Christ need to recognize the Spirit's strength and capability for each day. So let me propose this. Uh, we will not be a church that relies on life apart from the Holy Spirit working through us. We will not herald our own talents as though we are the impressive ones. Rather, we give credit to the Spirit's work in our life that's working even now. Through your weakness, through your struggle, through your pain, you will see the Spirit's work come alive in areas and places that you can never even begin to imagine, just like Mary. And it will break you of your pride, of your fault-finding, you know, trying to play the role of God in be judge and jury. Instead, you will submit yourself underneath the Spirit's work within you, and you will find your rest in it. Advent is a season of reminding ourselves of the story of God's people. Like Mary, who are called to a task that only God can do. And that our response must become one of recognizing God's mercy. God's spirit coming upon us and responding in faith to that promise. It reminds us that we are expecting a better hope than the ones that we become so blinded of in our everyday lives. It reminds us that even if God shifts life for us in ways that we cannot even begin to fathom, how will this be? Even if the task or the obstacle seems impossible to change, even if we must suffer and face shame and humiliation, nothing will be impossible for God. And nothing will stop the glory of God in fulfilling His purposes. And so, 
church as we continue on in Advent. Put your faith in him. Trust in his mercy and not your merit. Trust in the Spirit's work in your life. And get rid of all trust in yourself to complete the task. And go in faith in knowing that the God has called you to it will carry you through. Let's pray together.